I'd like for you to try to remember some of the stories that we were encountering earlier this year in 1 Samuel. So we talked about Samuel's boyhood and then uh, his encounter with God in the temple. And then if you'll remember, we, we had a series of stories beginning in about chapter 4 where the people of God and others were encountering various crises. All right, so in chapter 4, the Philistines are bearing down on the Israelites. And this is still in the days of Phineas and Hophni and Eli. And so what do they do? It's a, it's a real crisis. They go and they get the Ark of the Covenant and they say, let's go and set that out in front of us and surely nobody will be able to beat us. And they're defeated. They treat the Ark of the Covenant like a, a good luck charm, like a rabbit's foot. And then in chapter uh, 6, the Ark of the Covenant is in Philistia, in Ashdod, and Gath, and Ekron. And it brings boils and pestilence upon the people because they're treating it wrong. And what do they do? They don't go to God. They put it on a couple of cows and they send it back to Israel. Now notably, in chapter 7, the people of Israel repent. And then they have another crisis because the Philistines come again. And the Philistines always come again. The Philistines keep coming. But this time, this time, they cry out to God. And what does God do? He defeats the enemies. And then one more in chapter 8, and that's the last time that I had the opportunity to, to speak to you guys, was way back in chapter 8. The crisis that time is a crisis of leadership. Samuel is getting old. His sons are corrupt. We want somebody to lead us because we don't want to go back to the days of the judges. So there's the crisis, and what's the answer in that crisis? Is it to turn to God? No, they haven't learned their lesson. They say, we want a king to be like the other nations. And so God answers their prayer, and that gives us Saul. And we've been living with Saul for the last few chapters. And so one of the things that we saw through all of those crises is that when a crisis comes, it reveals our hearts. How we respond to the crisis reveals what's going on in our heart. Because it's easy to be calm when things are just normal. But when our world gets flipped upside down, that, that reveals what we're depending on. And I, I have to say, y'all, I've, I've been living with this virus crisis for at least two weeks longer than the rest of you, and I'll tell you why. Uh, when we were in Israel, uh, back at the end of February, we arrived in Galilee at a hotel called Ein Gev. You can go look it up. And when we got there, uh, it became apparent that a group of Korean uh, tourists had come through there and they had gone home and they had tested positive for the virus. And so here I am, at that point, I was already anxious about this virus, and now here I am, I've, I've brought myself to the epicenter of that virus. And there's 45 people on this team, and we're all Christians. And you can look it up. You can go Google that. Ein Gev coronavirus Israel. It's in the news. 
So it's not a secret. And so we have to deal with it. And we go and we talk to the people and they say, we've sanitized all the rooms and we've, um, we've quarantined all the people who worked with them and it was two full weeks ago from when y'all were here and all of those things. But in my heart, I, I was surprised. I was surprised by some of what I found there. And, and, and you know, to be frank, I was surprised by some of the people on the trip and, and by the reactions that people were having. And, and I did. And, and I just want to encourage you all, if, if, you're prone, if you're prone to be worried about these things, it was very important, you know, and, and, and many of you know a lot of what's gone in my, on in my life since then. Um, it's been very important to me through these days to, to come to the scriptures daily and remind myself about the truths that I hold dear. It, it has become imperative for me over the last few weeks to get up early, go to especially the Psalms. The Psalms have meant so much to me over these last couple of weeks to just be reminded that God is my rock. And God is my fortress. And I just want to encourage you today to remember to do the same. So all that to say, there couldn't be a more timely uh, passage for this current moment. And maybe that's why God held us off on getting to this passage for as long as he did. I don't have to manipulate this passage. Like, I'm not trying to forget to, to, to put our current situation into this passage. It fits fine because Israel is facing another crisis, another crisis involving the Philistines. And so this morning, we're going to see two responses to that crisis right up against each other. We're going to see a godly, faithful response on the part of Jonathan, and we're going to see an ungodly, complacent, unrepentant response on the part of Saul. And it's a very interesting passage. It's a little bit of a long passage. We're going to have to do a little bit of reading this morning. But I'll tell you what I think that this passage, as I've thought about this passage for the last six weeks, because uh, I've known this was the next one I'm going to preach. Y'all, I'm telling you, you, think, you may think that preaching is about trying to figure out what to say. When you've been studying a passage for six weeks, it is entirely about figuring out what not to say. Because I could download on this for a while. But let me say this. This is, I think, a huge thing that I've seen in this passage. All of our responses are really messy. We're really messy. This is a long, convoluted chapter. It doesn't resolve itself at the end like we would like it to. But I think it's a good picture of our Christian lives. Because our sinful responses, I'll, I'll own it, okay? And I, and I know most of you would too. My sinful responses and decisions in my life cause my, my life to sort of just look like a big hodgepodge of results sometimes. Some seem like successes. Some seem like failures. Feels like a mess. We're a mess. But God is on his throne. And we see in this passage that he's using all of those messes, good decisions and bad ones, to bring about his good purposes. And I take great, great comfort in that. All right, so let's open to chapter 13. We're going to back up just a minute to kind of set this up. 1 Samuel 13. We're going to read about the crisis. We'll start 
in verse 15. I didn't have anybody read today because I'm just going to kind of read these passages along as we encounter them. Let's, Let's look at verse 15. Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went after Saul to meet the army. And they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah to the land of Shul. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords and spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. All right, let me tell you what's going on here. That's a lot of words. This is a true crisis. The Philistines have come back, and it's bad. There are 600 men with Saul, and the Philistines are well fortified. And to make matters worse, did you catch that? The Philistines have taken over all of the metalworks in the land. And they've said, you can't have weapons. And if you want to have your, your, even your utensils, your tools that you use for work, if you want to have those sharpened, you have to come to us. The only people in the whole army who have weapons are Saul and Jonathan. And not only that, the Philistines are dug in at this place called Michmash, and we'll learn about that more in just a minute, but basically, you can't get there. They are dug in, they are fortified, and they're conducting raids out of Israel. Israel is undermanned, they're overmatched, morale is low. All right, so before we look at Jonathan, let me tell you about Saul. Jump up to chapter 14 in verse 2. Let's skip over Jonathan for one second and look at Saul. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah in a pomegranate cave in Migron. All right. No other translation other than the ESV translates that pomegranate cave. Every other translation translates that he was sitting under a pomegranate tree. I'm going with the tree, all right? Because it makes more sense to me. So just from here forth, I'm going to say sitting under the pomegranate tree, okay? File that away. It's not that important, but I just need you to know that. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. All right, two things I want you to see about Saul. Very important. Saul, remember, is the king of Israel, 
and his, uh, he is characterized at this point by two things, inaction and rejection. Inaction and rejection. Saul is paralyzed. The Philistines are attacking. And he is sitting under a pomegranate tree. And he's surrounded by all of his advisors. And he's doing nothing because he's afraid. And he is faithless. And he is not trusting in God's promises. It's very important for us to understand that about Saul. The second thing about Saul that is very important to understand is that he is surrounded by rejection that is a result of lack of repentance. So it's not an accident that the writer of Samuel says to us that there with him is this guy Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. I need you to jump back. Remember, why is it important that he is surrounded by Ichabod? No glory. The glory has departed. That's what Ichabod means. Remember all of that? He has surrounded himself with the rejected priestly line. He doesn't have Samuel with him anymore because he is being rejected as king. Saul has chosen to surround himself with this rejected priestly line. All of them, mind you, because they refuse to repent. Saul refused to repent. He is being rejected as king. Phineas, Hophni, Eli refused to repent. They were rejected in their priestly line. And I just want to, we'll talk more about this as we go along, but I think it's very important. I want to suggest to you that Saul and his royal court presents a picture to us of those who claim to be followers of God but fail to follow him in faith and repentance. Saul is sitting there. He is sitting there in dead faith, and he is doing nothing. No trust, no repentance, no power. Now, a disclaimer. I added this this morning. At this point, at no point today am I ever referring to anyone who didn't come to church today. Okay? I just want to make that clear, all right? Uh, uh, By sitting around and doing nothing, I am referring to those who maintain the status quo, who live, as James would say, faith without works is dead, who live in professed faith without works, okay? All right, so just to be clear, we are not talking, we are not condemning anybody who decided to stay home from church today, all right? So I wanted to get that on the table. All right, so all that to say... The situation is truly dire. The Philistines possess greater numbers and a dominant position, and they possess weapons. Israel doesn't have weapons. And the king, who has lost all vision, is sitting under a tree, and he has totally disabused himself of all of Yahweh's promises. So that's where we are. All right, story number one, Jonathan and his faith. Let me read it to you. We'll go all the way through verse 23. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go up over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave at Magron. The people who were with him were 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. 
within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison. There was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other. The name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sinna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come up to you, then we will stay still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign for us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earthquake, and it became a great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was a great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, so they were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel, who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing. They, too, followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. All right, so this is a story of great faith. It's a fun story. It's a battle story. So Jonathan is not inactive, all right? And that little, that little uh, piece that we read about Saul sitting under the tree, that is bookended by Jonathan's activity. Jonathan says, come up, let us go to the Philistine garrison on the other side. And then in verse 6, I love what he says. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord by many, from saving by many or by few. And all of this is taking place at this place called Michmash in this deep canyon between these two rock outcroppings. Bozes means slippery, and Sinna means thorny. So Jonathan is like, hey, let's go up to slippery and thorny and we will see 
what the Lord will do. And the main point of this passage is right there in verse 6. We will see what the Lord will do. Look at Jonathan's faith. Jonathan knows the promises of God to Israel, right? He's read the Bible. Over and over again in the books of Moses and Joshua, God has promised to be with Israel and to lead them into battle. And time and time again, we we saw it in chapter 7, when Israel has trusted God to go before them, He has come forward and He has won their battle on their behalf. So Jonathan says to his armor bearer, why are we just sitting here? Let's do something. God isn't glorified by our inaction. It may be that the Lord will be with us. It's almost like he's saying, hey, we've tried everything else. Why don't we try faith? And this is not name it, claim it theology. Jonathan is not being presumptuous. Faith is never that we would demand what we want from God. Faith is depending on God's actual promises. So it's not, let's go forth and God will make me rich. Let's go forth and God will make me successful. Let's go forth and God will make me healthy. We aren't aren't promised those things. However, any time we act according to God's actual promises, we are acting in faith. 1 John 1.9 Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Believing that you are forgiven is an act of faith. I am not going to live in guilt today. I am going to get up and I am going to trust God. That is going forth in faith. James 4, 7, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I am going to resist the devil. Why? Because the promises of God tell me that he will flee. If I draw near to God, he will draw near to me. I am going to draw near to God and trust that he will draw. That is not presumptuous. That is depending. That is honoring to God. James 1.5 promises that we will be given wisdom when we ask. Let's ask for wisdom here. Family, we're in this hard situation right now. Let's pause and let's ask for wisdom. And we are going to trust that God will answer that prayer. That is living in faith. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God provides a way of escape from temptation. When I see temptation coming and I say, God, help me out of this situation, He will help provide me with a way to not give in to temptation. Luke 12, 4 promises that Jesus is coming back. Every decision we make in this life in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back is an act of faith. Luke 6, 38, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with what measure you use, it will be measured to you. When I act in faith and give sacrificially, trusting that God will give back to me, I am simply believing a promise. I am acting on what He has said. Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Did I say treasures in heaven first? Sometimes I do that. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our heart as Christians should be to search out the scriptures and find all of those promises and live in light of them with the same attitude that Jonathan has. Let's go out and let's trust God and let's see what he does. Every time we get up and we act on God's promises, we're essentially saying the same thing that Jonathan has said. And this, this is the, the root of every evangelistic word. You know what? I'm going to share the gospel with this person, and I am going to believe that God can open the eyes of his heart. Adoption. Adoption. Every time we go out and adopt a child, bring a child into his home, we're essentially saying, I know God is honored by this, and I'm just going to do it, and we'll, we'll see what happens. Mercy ministry, every Christian who has ever started a school, a church, a hospital, a missions agency, at some point, somebody said, let's move forward and we will see what the Lord will do. It's kind of like faithful imagination. You know, God did not draw it up for Jonathan. Okay, if you go up that hill, if you climb up old slippery, then you get to the top, then you do this, then you do that. It's like, no. I believe that God can defeat these enemies, so I'm going to start, and I'll see what he does. And it takes courage, and it takes faith, and it takes some acknowledgement that, hey, the Lord may not choose to act like I think he will. I always think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, you know, where they're like, look, I ain't buying down to your idol. Uh, God may save us. <laughs> Or he may not, but I'm not bowing down to your idol. You know, it's like we're going to be faithful. God may choose to take our lives. God may choose to spare our lives. But we're going to trust him, and we're going to do what's right. And I just hope that's an encouragement to all of you guys. As the Lord puts things in your heart, and you're like, I don't know about that, go forward. And if it's trusting in the promises of God, see what the Lord does. So by now we know how this chapter ends. Jonathan comes up with a nifty little test. Hey, armor bearer, let's go up there and we'll, if they call us up there, we'll go up. And the Philistines say that little, you know, it's kind of like, I think, you know, I think the translation, you know, doesn't do it justice. I mean, I think basically, you know, hey, you little Hebrews, you come on up here and we'll teach you a lesson. And so Jonathan is like, okay, <laughs> here we come. And he comes up. He climbs up slippery and he starts taking out Philistines. And verse 13 says, I don't know how this was working exactly, but verse 13 says that, that Jonathan is like taking him down and then the armor bearer is coming behind him and he's finishing the job. Verse 15, there was a panic in the camp, in the field and among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked and it became a great panic. God doesn't leave Jonathan to go it alone. There's an earthquake. There's a panic. And pretty soon, according to verse 21, Hebrews are coming out of the hills. All the Hebrews who are in hiding are coming out to fight. And then some of the Hebrews who have switched sides, they switch back, and they start fighting for Israel. All of this because Jonathan decided 
to trust God and do something. Which tells me this. God doesn't leave us alone. When we go forward in his name and in faith, God does things that we don't expect. And this has been my experience over and over again, y'all. I just want to testify. When I have taken steps of faith with that sort of like faithful imagination and saying, okay, we're going to move forward and we're going to see what the Lord does. The Lord does a lot of things that I wasn't expecting. And most of them are way better than the things that I was expecting. Jonathan did not go out there expecting earthquakes and panic in the Philistine camp. But that's exactly what God did on his behalf. We see the whole point of the passage, verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day. God used Jonathan's faith, but God saved the people. It's a great story, but that's not the end of the story, and it's complicated. So let's look then at the story of failure. So that's the story of faith. Beginning in verse 24, we see this story of failure, and it's ugly. The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies, so none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared an oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb, and he put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how the eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint, and the people pounced on the spoil and took the sheep and the oxen and the calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone on me. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered him there, them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning. Let us not leave a man there. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. So Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives and saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he will surely die. But there was not a man among the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or Jonathan my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. 
But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And Jonathan said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall, shall, shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God today. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he would not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. It's a long passage. Verse 23, the first verse we read said, or the the last verse of the previous said, God saved Israel that day. Verse 24 says, and the men of Israel were hard-pressed that day. So Saul, here's what's going on. Saul has been shaken out of his inactivity by Jonathan's faithfulness. And his own lack of vision has been exposed. And And I think that it's pretty obvious as we get further along into 1 Samuel that Saul has a problem with envy. He has a problem with jealousy. And he's probably upset that Jonathan has showed him up. And he felt like he needed to do something. And so what the Bible is saying is the men of Israel are hard-pressed because Saul gave a foolish order. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. Y'all, this is a command rooted in superstition and not faith. Saul feels like he should do something in light of Jonathan's success but he doesn't act in faith. He doesn't have it in him. And so he comes up with something on his own to do. And so Saul reasons that what we need to do is engage in some kind of self-denial. Rather than trusting in the promises of God, let's propose a way to earn God's favor. Let's establish a law. And get this. This is so interesting. Israel is hard-pressed at the beginning of the passage because they're being attacked by the Philistines. They're hard-pressed in the middle of the passage, not by the Philistines, but by a foolish order from their king. And the result is twofold. Number one, they're exhausted. And number two, they end up sinning. They commit ritual sin by eating meat with the blood in it, which was forbidden by the law. In other words, Saul's foolish order makes the situation worse. And I want you guys to see this this morning because this is so important. There is such freedom in faithfulness. We saw this in Jonathan. Jonathan says, let's see what happens when I obey God, when we trust in God. In Saul, we see the bondage of worldly reasoning. Did God ever promise to deliver anybody because they didn't eat? So Jonathan's faith leads to victory, and Saul's legalism leads to more sin and bondage. And there's, there's no reason to give this order other than the fact that Saul is just like, I need to do something, and it's harmful. It's not helpful. And as a side note, Jonathan didn't even hear the order. He finds honey, and he eats it, and he's refreshed, and he's strengthened, and he's able to keep doing the Lord's work. Saul is stuck, and churches and individuals 
get stuck. I get stuck. We all get stuck. Sin, suffering, uncertainty, we've all felt it. We've all felt like sitting under our own pomegranate tree somewhere and just sort of freezing. And we withdraw from community and we quit seeking that relationship with God. And we turn to loving ourselves rather than loving God and others. This is, this is sort of a built-in feature of our sinful hearts. And what we need is repentance. We need to turn back to God and believe that as we turn to God, He will draw near to us. That's trusting in that promise, right? I don't feel close to God, but the promise is if I draw near to him, he will draw near to me. But like Saul, a lot of times our hearts don't want to admit it's that easy. And so we come up with some idea. Maybe there's some penance that need to be paid. Maybe I just need to try harder. You know what? I'll step up the sacrifices. I need to look like I'm doing something that God has called me to do. And I see a real parallel here in churches, in dead churches, because corporately, I think pastors and other churches, I think a lot, this is epidemic. I don't know if we can use that word right now, but it's, it's epidemic among churches to say, you know what we need to do, people? We need to try harder. We need to do more stuff. Rather than repentance and greater dependence on God and deeper fellowship and love for one another, they call for more sacrifice and more evangelism and more giving and more programs. And I think so many stuck, dead, or dying churches try to address their problems by adding things to do rather than drawing near to God. And these solutions, they seem spiritual. It probably seemed real spiritual. Hey, y'all, you know what we're going to do? We're not going to eat until we win this battle. That seems real spiritual on the outside, but it just ends up hurting people by putting something on them that God hasn't called for. So in Saul's case, the people are exhausted and they sin. I think today these kinds of solutions end up exhausting people and filling people with just a sense of failure and powerlessness about the church. And it all begins to spiral in the life of King Saul. And this is a sad story, and it's going to get sadder as we go along. In verses 36 through 46, they sort of painfully illustrate this spiral. He's a leader of God's people, and he's not seeking God. Saul doesn't know what to do. Everything about Saul stands in stark contrast to Jonathan. And so in this flurry of desire to show some leadership, Saul starts giving orders. He says, let's go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them. Let's do something. Come on. Verse 36. That seems like leadership, right? We need to do something. Let's go finish the job. You know, Jonathan is acting in faith, and he's like, let's, you know, let's attach ourselves to him. And then somebody says, Saul, shouldn't we see... God? And so Saul goes and inquires of God, and he says, should I go do this thing that I want to do? And God is silent. God does not answer him, because Saul is so wrapped up in his own reputation and his own kingdom. He is not a man after God's own heart. He is a man after Saul's heart. I just read, I've been, I've been in the 60s, Psalm 60s this week. I just read Psalm 66, 18. It's a startling verse. I have it highlighted in my Bible. Every time I read it, it gives me pause. The psalmist says, If I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. 
So the heavens are like a concrete ceiling for those who refuse to repent, who refuse to live in repentance. How is this so hard for us to understand? How is it so hard to trust that if we just draw near to God, He will draw near to us? That if we come to Him in repentance, confessing, confessing, it means to say the same thing as, God, I agree with you. That thing I did was wrong. That attitude I've had is wrong. That way of living I've had is wrong. And God is so sweeping in His desire to say, you are forgiven and to draw us close to Him, but there's something in us that keeps us from taking that step and we would rather do things instead. We would rather add things instead. So Saul's attempts at seeking God are half-hearted. They're an afterthought. The next thing Saul does is he begins to shift the blame. Saul won't see that he is the problem. There must be something else. I know it's not me. There's a problem here, Saul is saying, and I know it's not me. There must be somebody else here who's the problem. And he makes this big pronouncement, this curse. And he says, even if it's my son Jonathan, whoever is the problem, they're out. We're going to kill them. They're dead. And it's another common response from the complacent, stuck Christian is to begin to place blame on others. Someone else must be responsible for my problems. I'm stuck here. And if I could just remove that other person from the equation, then my life would be better. And so often that's just the beginning of the isolation because as we identify the people that are the problems in our lives, you're out, okay, I'm still having a problem. You're out, okay, I'm still having a problem. Sooner or later you run out of people because the person who's really to blame is the one person that you're not dealing with. It was indeed Jonathan who had disobeyed Saul's foolish order. And so Saul has really made a mess of things now. At first he was enslaved to the Philistines, and now he's enslaved to this dumb pronouncement that he made. And so, in direct opposition to his foolishness, the people won't put up with his solution. First of all, I want you to notice Jonathan's response. Because again, God could not be more clearly putting Jonathan and Saul up against each other here. Jonathan says in verse uh, 43, I did it. I tasted the honey. I put a little bit on the tip of my hand. Here I am. I will die. No evasiveness. No excuses. No blame shifting. Full integrity. He doesn't even say, Dad, I didn't hear you say that. He says, I did it. Full integrity. Full faithfulness. I'll own it. There is so much freedom in living in that light. Here's the final thing I think we learned from this passage. God's word always stands. Saul's does not. God's word always stands. Ours does not. Saul intends to follow through with his rash vow. Thankfully, the people have more sense than their king. We don't want Jonathan to die. This is the guy who had faith. This is a monumental failure of leadership for Saul, a foolish king refusing to back off from his foolish command, and now he looks foolish to his people. Saul, don't kill the man who worked with God in this whole thing. Don't be so ridiculous. There's a weird postscript 
in verses 47 through 52. And for the sake of time this morning, I won't read it. You can read it. It is a weird postscript because it sounds like Saul is done. It's sort of a recounting of all of his success as a king. If you're reading through 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you see these, uh, these sort of summaries of a king at the end of their life. And it's like, okay, and that guy died, and now this guy, his son, rose up and took his place. The interesting thing is Saul isn't dead. So Saul has expanded the territory of Israel. He's been a military leader, like the leaders of the other nations. Probably more than any other leader, he has been successful in defeating Israel's enemies. He has a large family. He has put his family into various administrative and military positions. From a practical perspective, Saul was a successful king. The people asked for a king that would be like the other nations, and God gave them a king like the other nations. Here you go. But from God's perspective, Saul was a failure. So I think this wrap-up here at the end of chapter 14, even though he continues to be king for the rest of the book, is because Saul's reign is done in the mind of God and in the mind of this author. From the writer's perspective, he will no longer be Israel's true king, even though he will continue to function as king. And so next week in chapter 15... The Lord will reject him. In chapter 16, God will anoint David, who is a king after his own heart. And then things get really interesting. All right, three quick things to conclude this morning. I think this is a fascinating passage. I've enjoyed living in it in the last six weeks. The difference between dead churches and thriving churches, stagnant Christians and vibrant Christians, is the same as the difference between Saul and Jonathan. It's the difference between sitting there in inactivity and rejection or moving forward in faith and repentance. Here's a huge glaring thing that I saw in this passage. I didn't see it myself. Some, somebody I read pointed it out. Remember, this is a book about kings. Jonathan would have been a great king. He is faithful. He is courageous. He is wise. He is the king's son and he never gets to reign over the kingdom. His hard work and his success is not rewarded, and it doesn't seem fair. Why not Jonathan? Why couldn't Jonathan have been the man after God's own heart to lead Israel? And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what do any of us deserve? This is the first time we get to see Jonathan. He'll be a player on the scene for the rest of the book. He's probably best known as David's very close friend. He was raised to be the next king, and yet, as you probably know, he will die on the battlefield next to his foolish father. You know, we Americans, we tend to be very optimistic. We believe if you work hard, you will be rewarded. You can do anything you want as long as you put your mind to it. God helps those who help themselves, which isn't in the Bible, actually. And y'all, there are plenty of faithful people today and throughout history who have not been noticed and not been rewarded in this life as they should have been. But faithfulness doesn't have its sights set on this life because faithful people are focused on Christ and hearing him say, well done, good and faithful servant. When you get to heaven, you can talk to Jonathan and he'll probably tell you, I am really thankful that I was faithful 
that God gave me the ability to be faithful even though I never became king. Second, a faithful life is not a sedentary life. And I would contend that there are more Saul's in the church today than there are Jonathan's. There are more professing Christians sitting under pomegranate trees than there are faithful Christians saying, let's get out there and act and see what God does. So Jonathan and Saul both knew the promises of God. Both of them could have lived in the light of those promises. James says, faith without works is dead. The demons believe and they tremble. But no one thinks that the demons are faithful just because they believe the right things about God. Jonathan's trust in God did not result in an easy life. He still had to climb up slippery. He still had to battle those Philistines. He fell victims to Saul's foolish order, and he almost left, lost his life as a result. Like, nobody's looking at Jonathan and being like, wow, your faithfulness really resulted in a lot of blessings after you almost died because your dad was going to kill you because you ate some honey. That's, that's not an a, a, a obviously blessed situation. How many times must Jonathan have been grieved? by his dad's choices, by the decisions that his dad was making. All that to say, God never promises it will be easy, but he does promise that it will be blessed, and he promises that he will be there, and that he will help, and that he will come through, and that he will provide. And then also, there's just such freedom in integrity and faithfulness and repentance. Look at the two lives. Who do you want to be like? The guy who just makes foolish decision after foolish decision after foolish decision as he moves further and further away from God according to his bad choices or the one who says, let's go and see what God does. Yeah, I'm the one who ate the food. It's all out there. Integrity, faithfulness, repentance. Finally, Faithfulness and this virus. So we all sit here today with at least one big crisis on our minds. And the Philistines aren't attacking us, but a virus is. And our hearts wrestle with the anxieties of loved ones who may suffer. And this has potential to change our lives for the foreseeable future. And I would contend how we deal with this crisis displays what's actually going on in our hearts and I would say that we need to deal with this crisis by remaining faithful. And if we have to stay in our houses, that doesn't mean that we have to be locked in fear. I would encourage you today, center your hearts in the promises of God and live accordingly. Join me in taking extra time right now to get up and set your heart, set your mind. Paul says in Colossians 3, set our minds on things above where Christ is seated. Let's set our minds. Don't have your quiet times on the internet. It's not helpful. Spend your time in the Word of God and set your heart there. If you find this crisis revealing things in your heart that are ungodly, repent of those things. Draw near to God. We may not be able to gather as much as we would hope, but I'll tell you what, we're still going to be doing ministry. And if you would like to talk, if you would like to take some of this time to talk with Matt or I or somebody else, we are here. We will sit six feet apart from one another, and we will talk, and we will pray together, and we will help you if you are struggling through this time. Seek ways to act in love to God 
and love to your neighbor. If God places an opportunity to serve someone else, act. Act with courage. If you need to go somewhere that may feel a little bit germy, you know, but it's the way you need to love your neighbor, take precautions and and proceed in faith. Love others by not insisting on doing all the things you would like to do right now. I think the wrong response for us as Christians is to refuse to do the things that people are asking us to do because we're somehow like, no, I will do what I'm going to do. If we need to, like, not go to the water slide right now because there's potential for spreading germs, then don't go to the water slide or wherever it is that you were planning on going over spring break. Use the time to pray, have devotions with your children, share the gospel with those around you who may be afraid. May be afraid. And don't do foolish things rooted in fear and selfishness. Probably shouldn't proclaim a fast for your whole family so that you can avoid the germs. Go ahead and eat those fruits and vegetables. It's good for the immune system. Drink lots of water. Don't do dumb things that seem spiritual just because. Live in faithfulness and trust God and wash your hands. <laughs> Have y'all seen everybody uh, quoting James for, you know, wash your hands, you sinners? There's, there's a meme about that, you know, going around on Facebook all the time. All right, let me pray. Our gracious Father, you have given us so many wonderful promises. And Father, I pray that we would be a people who trust in those promises. I'm so thankful for your promises. I'm so thankful that you have promised to never leave us or forsake us, that you have promised to always be with us. I am so thankful that you are the God over every single little molecule, little microscopic organism. Father, there's so many things I can't protect myself from that you protect me from all the time. And so, Father, help us to rest in these things. Lord Jesus, you are our King. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. Every enemy is going to be put under your feet. Father, may we be more concerned about our souls. May we be evasive in our actions to guard ourselves from those things which might lead us to be more like Saul than Jonathan. So I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the day that it fell. I thank you for these people who gathered here to hear it. And may we go out from here in light of it. In Christ's name, amen.